welcome to the third episode of the LSE Real Estate Club podcast. I'm Ryan. And I am Carlos. <clears throat> and today we have a very, very special guest. Um, so we're here with Paul Cheshire. I'm sure you've heard a lot about him when we've been doing our studies. And he's the one who actually set up the LSE Reef program. So very excited. How are you, Paul? I'm I'm fine, surviving well. It's been <laughs> strange. I hope to be in person in the LSE very soon. Hopefully. <laughs> well, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, Paul, so essentially, we'll just start off with telling us about your background, maybe where you grew up and your academic journey. Uh, yeah, fine, that's right. So so you know, I graduated from Cambridge and was almost the only person in Britain at the time who was interested in urban economics. Wow. Uh, so I was doing research on, uh, on, on what I now call spatial economics and then got a job at the University of Reading and at Reading, they had a very big cohort of professional uh, students working towards a qualification for the RICS in real estate. Yeah. And so and the economics department had a bit of an input into this. So I was obviously lined up to teach economics, urban economics in particular, to the real estate students. So that's how I discovered what real estate students were actually being forced to learn. That's great. So what, what is it about urban economics that um, sparked your interest? uh what urban economics what sparked my interest in urban economics or from urban economics to real estate and um, from urban economics to real estate uh because of course you know urban uh, urban economics is about the use of land and prices and how things are set in real estate markets to a large extent and you realize the more you look at uh, urban economics the more important you realize land markets are both uh, in terms of financial terms, but also in, in welfare economics terms, because it's via finance markets that access to a whole range of public goods and services uh, is, is rationed, if you like, via the price system. Okay. So if I want a house in a quiet street in London, I have to pay a premium, which is why poor people tend to live in houses noisy and, uh, and got more pollution. Okay, so um, maybe you could tell us about how you built a relationship with LSE and how this came about in terms of starting off a reef program. So, you know, I started the University of Reading back in 1972. And I thought as you know, I thought as a conscientious academic, I ought to find out something about what these students were being taught. So I discovered and they were basically being taught what was then called valuations which was how to value property. And the whole syllabus revolved around what was thought to be the absolutely essential issue of what's called year's purchase. Now, I don't expect, Ryan, you ever heard, have you heard of year's purchase? No, no but maybe if you want to explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, it arises from the medieval prohibition on usury by the Christian church. Okay. Now, Islamic finance still doesn't allow usury, uh, so, you know, clever people just worked out that a mathematical transformation of the rate of interest bought you a year's purchase. So a year's purchase is how long the annual payments from an investment would be, would arithmetically sum to the num to the value of the principal. So essentially, it's just it's just a different word for, for, for it's a way of disguising the fact that there's a rate of interest involved and you're discounting. So the poor old uh, real estate guys were still being taught this Christian finance. Uh, so they were living in this sort of world and, they, and it was entirely mechanical. So yields were simply backed out of observed market prices. Uh, you observed the price, you knew the rents, you could work out what the implied yield was and you just applied that yield to uh, to value the next 
office block or whatever it was. Unfortunately, of course, uh, there are real economic forces, including urban economic forces, that determine what's going to happen to rents in the future. Uh, so at this moment, uh, what real estate professionals were doing were valuing office blocks on the basis of a 17.5% annual rate of real rent growth over the next 15 years, uh, because they were simply taking absurdly high yields from the present market. The market was overvalued. Uh, about 18 months later, the market and real in commercial property uh, collapsed. Oh, wow. And it was fairly obvious that it was going to collapse because you could see the real economy was not in a good shape and was coming to a recession. It was a, in, in the economic cycle. And at that collapse of the real property market back in the early 70s, then I mean, it, it triggered a, a near collapse in, in many banks. There was a real problem for the banking sector, as there was in, uh, in 2008. Uh, so what I, the lesson I drew from that was you have to value real estate assets. Yes, they're financial assets. Yes, they, they're part of a portfolio of assets, but they are real estate assets. So you have to look at the underlying market for real estates if you're going to understand what likely uh, rental growth you're going to have, and therefore what is a, an economically rational valuation of a real estate asset. Hmm. Sorry, if, if I may intervene. Um, you're talking about like the similarities of this uh, crisis in the 70s with the 2008 um, <clears throat> crisis. Uh, can you tell us more about like uh, the similarities that you found between this crisis and what are your takes on these? Like how, how can we prepare for a future crisis? Okay, so the problem back in the 70s was that real estate professionals were operating in a completely isolated bubble of their own intellectual uh, sort of systems, uh, and they didn't connect with the financial and banking world and, and people who were asset managers. And because of the banking crisis, there was a demand that they update their methods and that they begin to sort of talk in terms that were intelligible to bankers and to uh, asset managers. However, you know, it, the 2008 crisis was almost completely the opposite. So I then took on the role, I, as I saw it, of trying to convince people who were learning about real estate that it had to be valued as an asset in the same way as other assets were, uh, because that's what, not what they were doing. But of course, then you get to 2007 or the early 2000s, really, and then you have wonderful, clever financial people who think that you can somehow avoid the problems of real estate by securitizing them and packaging them all together. But of course, if you're selling worthless houses to poor people who are going to lose their jobs, it doesn't matter how you securitize the assets, you still have market to another extreme where you're not realizing that real estate is an asset with particular characteristics and you have to take account of those characteristics because there's a real market out there with supply and demand actually determining the price and rental growth, etc., in real estate markets. Makes so much sense. So in terms of um, starting this up at the LSE, was there any barriers to do so? Was there any problems that you encountered? Well, the, the idea was to try and put uh, the study of real estate into a sort of modern context that I've been trying to describe, where you also dealt with real estate as a specific and unusual type class of asset. 
there was my main my first thing I did was simply to say we're not going to teach a syllabus which is recognized by any professional body because if you had a professional body interfering they'd have forced you to teach what had been taught for the last 500 years and that was in a sense the problem uh, and the other thing of course was that if you had applied modern economics and, and finance back in 1972-73 and you had an entrepreneurial spirit which of course i did not have i was an <laughs> academic uh, you could have made absolutely shed loads of money by simply anticipating the collapse yeah. of real estate uh, assets and uh, so the LSE, it was relatively easy to persuade the LSE that this was okay. made sense and it worked very well in the in the in the geography department because we were then trying to build the new sort of economic geography much more quantitative much more like urban economics and real estate uh, i think the proper study of real estate includes uh, a good understanding of urban economics yeah or aspects of urban economics I think uh, I've been speaking with a lot of students and actually one of the things that students really value is the economics part of, of the REIF program compared to other programs that are out there that are yeah, more and they should go together, they should yeah, complement yeah. each other. You know, you can't, the finance is no good on its own, the, the urban economics and the real estate economics is no good on its own. They need to go together so you understand both funds. And this is, you know, Mike's fairly long experience now is that Every 15 years, bankers make this a different mistake, but for the sort of similar reasons. That is impossible to learn from past errors, it appears. Uh, if you can bear that in mind and take it forward into your own professional lives, you may actually be able to turn it to very good account financially. Yeah, definitely. And over the last 22 years then, would you say that the programme changed a lot? And if it has, in what ways would you say that it's done so? Well, it, it's, it hasn't changed at all, and it's changed a lot. In terms of its conception, it's still the same. It's still trying to bring together modern finance with modern urban economics and real estate economics. That's its sort of prime. And at the same time, absolutely critical to it, which is, I think, part of the LSC tradition, is to make it applied so it's real world problems but it's making students think for themselves so they can ask questions about the subject they're studying Definitely. so that's how it hasn't changed how it has changed of course the actual content changes because there is new research and and we try to you know it's a research-based uh, syllabus so the syllabus is always evolving because there's always new research and we're finding out new things i mean when i started I knew about agglomeration economies, but there was very little implied work on agglomeration economies. And there was, I think probably, I don't know if you had it already, but Gabrielle Arlfeld is going to tell you something about vertical agglomeration economies, the skyscraper yeah. economy. Now that is, that's only in the last three or four years that people have had oh, really? empirical evidence uh, demonstrating that this is a real valuable uh, asset, a, a consequence you know, to the real economy of uh, high rise buildings. Yeah, um, if I may add to that, you were telling us about that you've seen this um, new market in super yachts. Uh, can you tell us more about this? I find well, it really I, I, amusing. Like, <laughs> it's amazing. So, so there you are. You've got uh, this is Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse have yeah. lent an awful lot of money to mega rich people. One of the uh, effects of the last 10 years has been this emergence of a bigger class of really super rich mega rich people 
So one of their toys are super yachts, and you know these can cost up to a hundred million pounds. Wow. Uh, so and they're financed. So there's Credit Suisse been lending money on these super yachts, and now they've uh, developed a securitization of these uh, assets. But what I would suggest is you should think about them in terms of what I was just describing: the supply and demand for for, for super yachts. What are they? They are wasting assets. Why are they wasting assets? Because unlike an office block, they don't occupy a location and land. You have to have a mooring, uh, okay. which does not change in value over time. It may increase indeed, it may increase in price because there's only much so much space in Monte, Monte Carlo, where, in Monaco, where you can uh, moor your super yacht. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, in terms of an asset, it seems to me it's much more like a, a, a Winnebago. Do you know what Winnebago is? No, maybe it's less. Uh, it's, a very upmarket, it's a very upmarket uh, camping van. Okay, perfect. Sort of thing that uh, you have on Hollywood shoots for the, for the stars, you know? Okay. But that's a wasting asset. It, 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 yeah. it, it requires a lot of maintenance and yeah. the fashion can change. In addition, the, it, there's an inelastic supply of these super yachts and what is the demand dependent on? It's dependent on there being a supply of incredibly rich people who are willing to spend millions of pounds a year to maintain and run their super yachts. Now that can change. You know, we, we, we talk about what's happening in Ukraine and we worry about the uh, impacts for the price of energy. But if it wipes out Russian uh, oligarchs in terms of their ability to, to operate in the West, that would have a devastating effect on the demand for super, yacht, super yachts. Similarly, you know, if there was a collapse in the oil price, that too would dry up the supply of uh, multi-billionaires who buy uh, uh, super yachts. So it's a, it's, it's a market, a very specific market. And to think you can just securitize it, and that's the end of it, you've got rid of the risk, is completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking, I don't know, I may be completely ignorant to this subject, but I was thinking that um, as soon as this market becomes more common, it will lose the value. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the market of what, sorry? In... Of the super yachts. Well, I think it depends on what, how many, what the supply of people who have wealth in the sort of, hundreds of millions of pounds it, these are these are you know not only do they cost 100 million pounds to buy but they um they cost mi probably millions of pounds a year to maintain and run operate mm -hmm. so that sort of that tiny group of super rich people we don't know what's going to happen to that over time it's increased over the last um 15, 10 years, and indeed during the COVID crisis, it appears it's increased uh, more. Well, um, why would you say it's increased over the COVID times, the crisis? It, it, it's it, because it seems to have even to have increased the uh, inequality of wealth distribution even yeah. more than it was previously, partly because it's favoured uh, a small number of internet uh, type operators, you know, Amazon is a, is, is a prime example, and indeed, uh, uh, the most expensive super yacht in the world is now under construction for the uh, founder of Amazon in, in Rotterdam. Um, yeah. 
it's so big they're going to have to de demolish a bridge to get it out of the um, where it's being built. <laughs> so, so there there are people who've made an awful lot of money uh, in the process of you know particularly in in internet the increased use of internet over the last uh five ten years which was accelerated yeah. by the covid crisis and then before that of course you had the breakup of the soviet union and the uh, allocation of the original state assets to people in which made incredibly rich people out of some you know some of them bought football clubs some of them bought super yachts yeah some of them Definitely. bought both <laughs> yeah that's really interesting and something we didn't know about um and just going back to you uh, personally we're just wondering if obviously with the um abundance of knowledge you have on urban economics and real estate economics whether you actually um have a property portfolio of your own or if you've invested in property yourself <laughs> no <laughs> uh, no um no as i said I, as i said right at the beginning i'm not an entrepreneurial in okay. that way i'm an academic entrepreneur yeah. So I like new ideas uh, and I and I like an adequate income and I managed to have an adequate income. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I'd say is that I've used my knowledge of the housing market to make a, a ridiculous and criminally large amount of money in my transactions in housing. Okay. So I don't have a, I don't have a I don't have a portfolio of properties. I do have a uh, a holiday home in France and I have a <laughs> one buy to let. Uh, but this is sort of accidental. I haven't set out to speculate. I've just, for example, when I bought the present house that you can see behind me a bit of, okay. it's, in, it's when I came to the LSE in 1995. So I used my hedonic analysis and I yeah. realized that, uh, you know, people, that there's a big premium paid for access to a good school. Now, both yeah, my definitely. children had just left school. So I bought a house in a nice, the nicest neighborhood I could find with the worst possible school. <laughs> That's smart. <laughs> Why pay a premium? And the yeah. school has got better, you know. So now <laughs> I've also got that benefit. And one more thing, obviously, because you obviously got so many papers out there, could we get an idea of how many um, papers you've wrote over your career? I don't know. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> well over 100. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> And um, just to end off, there, thank you for this, but any advice you'd like to give to the Reef students or about getting into real estate on your advice on how you think the market might change in the future? I'm very, very cautious. I've just been talking to the uh, property uh, editor of the Daily Telegraph about what's going to happen to property prices into next year. I was very cautious indeed. I think that we're in a, it, it, the world is more uncertain than we've known it for a very long time. Uh, you know, you've got how how our city's going to come back after COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, that's important for the for the for, for the office market. I think cities will come back because agglomeration economies are so fundamental. But London may be a, something of an exception because London is had to jump over its green belt. So that yeah. means that there's a lot of commuters into London who are, who were traveling huge distances. You know, two hour train journeys uh, a day. Now yeah. the further you're commuter trip was the more you want to work from home yeah so i think that london may see more you know, a lower rate of comeback to the office than say a provincial city like bristol or uh, or a city like new york that doesn't have a uh, a green belt that people can uh, closer to um would you say that uh, this this um I guess these office rates will maintain down or will they eventually reach to the original point before COVID? Uh, I think that they will, in general, 
uh, go back and exceed the le level in COVID before COVID, because um, because I think, as I was saying, I think agglomeration economies are fundamental and important, and we've already discussed the sort of vertical. I think offices may change in that people may require more space, higher quality offices, better ventilation, etc., because people have learnt that actually you can catch diseases. I think it's a bit of a problem for pu public transit uh, because clearly, you know. The, the New York subway or the or the Peking uh, metro or the London underground that it, it's difficult to make them absolutely sort of secure in terms of infection yeah. whereas smaller cities it's easier to do that um, but I still think cities will come back yeah 100% and just to end off so we're currently doing a uh, coursework on the retail market of shopping centers in Lewisham. So what's your opinion on commercial shopping centers? And obviously at the moment we've, we've seen that they've hit the highest vacancy rates in a long time. And people are let, obviously with the um, dominance of online shopping, a lot less people are going into these shopping centers. So what's your opinion on that? Um, well, this, this, this is a point I was almost going to make earlier on when you have to look at the real, you know, underlying the value of a real estate asset is the real demand for its services. Yeah. And one of the effects of COVID has been to hugely increase internet shopping. Yeah. And that means that, the, you know, but it's the, so that's had a big, big hit on the value of retail space, uh, but probably it's going to be a bigger hit for obsolete real estate uh, uh, retail space than for modern real estate uh, retail space. And being well located is going to be even more important than it was. But I think an awful lot of sort of second tier re retail is going to basically become obsolete, possibly get converted into housing or in, in the UK context, but in other contexts, who knows? Yeah, I've also seen, as, as you said, that e-commerce is, is becoming uh, more common. So also that demand for these logistics uh, warehouses are, are increasing. So Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's an upside, if you like. Yeah, huge increase in the demand for, for uh, logistics space. And other sorts of uh, storage space also is, is uh, something that's uh, boomed. Definitely. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Paul. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to have this conversation with us. Well, it's very nice to meet you and good luck. And I hope your project goes well. Let me know so whether much. I should whether I should become an entrepreneur and buy a slice of Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely. Yeah, yeah. See you later, Paul. Have a good day. Okay, bye. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.